Welcome to the Inclusive Education Project. I'm Vicki Brett. I'm Amanda Salohi. We're two civil rights lawyers on a mission to change the conversation about education, civil rights, and modern activism. Each week, we're going to explore new topics which are going to educate and empower others and give them a platform to enact change in education and level the playing field. And we're back. We is being used very loosely here because it is just me, Vicki, doing a very short introduction about the perfectly anxious clinical perfectionism and how to handle it panel that was hosted by the Newton that is near Boston, Massachusetts, Fusion Campus Center. They had such fabulous speakers on this panel that we were able to moderate and record for your listening pleasure. Dr. Ryan, Dr. Kara, and also Jackie from Educational Consultants really brought to light a lot of the issues that we're seeing in all school districts across the nation, the issues that we're seeing with clinical depression and anxiety. The conversation was hopeful, though. We did speak about potential solutions for parents to look for and how to help your district kind of start putting in practical solutions for these really heavy issues. We were so grateful that this was our first stop on our podcast tour. It was a great conversation that actually went a little bit more than our recording for those that were present, which we're hoping will happen at our future live recordings as well. They didn't want us to stop, but we stopped the recording. So next time you'll just have to come out and see it live. Anyway, we hope you enjoy it and we both will talk to you soon. Good evening and welcome. It's such a pleasure to have such a nice crowd here this evening to talk about a topic that is really very important to our camp. This is for the actual recording to the campus and to our families. For those of you who have not been to our campus before, this is Fusion Academy Newton. We are an independent private school for grades 6 through 12, and we are an innovative school where the learning occurs in a one-to-one setting. So one teacher, one student, which is quite different, but highly, highly effective, Um, and it's been a remarkable experience for us. We opened in September of 2018, and we are over 50 students strong at this point continuing to grow so just really it's been a a remarkable journey and experience for all of us so this evening we will be focused on anxiety and perfectionism in our middle and high school students the ladies that's sitting in front of me are from the inclusive education project an organization based in Southern California and they reached out to us because they have identified a real following in our area they provide a live podcast on a variety of different topics and I'll talk a little bit about their background in just a moment but we're just very pleased to be able to partner with them they also have had the opportunity to work with other fusion campuses on the West Coast so a really truly wonderful partnership the mission for the inclusive education project I'd like to just really read that very quickly before we get started We are a team of civil rights attorneys on a mission to educate and empower our community to ensure all children are given equal opportunities. We provide legal advocacy, education, and community for the families of children living with a disability. 
So we thank you very much for that work, that great work. I'd like to introduce Vicki Brett and Amanda Sologi. Vicki Brett was born and raised in Southern California. She attended UC Riverside and, re- and earned a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science and a minor in Philosophy before becoming a very active Whittier Law School student and alumnus. Through the law firm, Sologi and Brett LLP, Vicki is committed to strengthening her clients who come to her disheartened and beaten down by the current education system. Because Vicki is bilingual, she represents and empowers many monolingual Spanish-speaking families living in Southern California. Moreover, she is dedicated pro bono attorney for Public Law Center, the Alliance for Children's Rights, and the Superior Court of Los Angeles's Juvenile and Dependency 317 panel. Most recently, Vicki became a supervisor for the UCI Law School's pro bono special education law project. Vicki's commitment to community service is embodied in the legal advocacy 501c3 nonprofit she co-founded. The Inclusive Education Project focuses on educating families about the legal rights their children living with special needs are entitled to, and it also provides pro bono legal aid to low-income families in California. So thank you, Vicki, for this great work. Amanda uh, Sologi earned a degree in child and adolescent development, specializing in education from California State University, Northridge, and a Juris Doctorate from Whittier Law School. While at WLS, Amanda was a fellow in the prestigious Center for Children's Rights Fellowship Program, served in the school's pro bono special education legal clinic, and as research editor of the Journal of Child and Family Advocacy. Amanda co-founded a boutique civil rights litigation firm, Sologi and Brett. LLP specializing in specific civil rights issues on behalf of children living with special needs and co-founded the Inclusive Education Project, a legal advocacy 501c3, a nonprofit organization focused on educating families on their legal rights to their children's education and providing prono legal aid to low-income families in California. So thank you very much, Amanda, for your great work as well. We also have three local panelists this evening who serve in our community in wonderful ways. I'd like to first begin with Dr. Ryan Madigan, and I'll share a little bit about his background. Dr. Madigan founded the Boston Child Study Center in 2013 with a mission to improve the lives of youth and families through expanding access to evidence-based treatment, community education and training, and research. He later expanded the center to Natick in Los Angeles. He is an instructor of psychology in the Department of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and a clinical psychologist at the McLean Hospital 3E's DBT program, where he co-founded the 3E's DBT Trauma and Exposure Program for adolescents struggling with PTSD, anxiety, depression, and co-occurring suicidal behaviors and non-suicidal self-injury. Dr. Madigan earned his master's degree and doctorate in clinical psychology at Rutgers University. He completed his clinical fellowship in pediatric psychology at Harvard Medical School, Children's Hospital Boston, and his postdoctoral fellowship at BU Center for Anxiety and Related Disorders. Dr. Madigan's research focuses on developing transdiagnostic interventions, anxiety disorders, PTSD, and mood disorders, as well as eliminating geographic and financial barriers to treatment through his expanded telehealth center. In addition to his work at BCSC, he provides consultation for written and televised media segments regarding issues in the fields of psychology and mental health. Thank you, Dr. Madigan. Jackie Jewett. Jackie has been an educational consultant and school advocate for over 30 years. She has an MS with a concentration in special education from SUNY Albany and a BA from St. Lawrence University. 
Prior to joining Educational Directions, she was the Managing Director of Educational Outreach, Parent Engagement, and Student Relations for a small liberal arts college in New England, where she oversaw the academic support services for six departments and the new business development and outreach. Jackie is an expert in the field of special education, transition services, and educational environments, curriculum development and alignment, school accreditation process, academic support service, and school placement. She's a national presenter on learning disabilities, ADHD, ASD, anxiety, and executive functions, navigating college and transitions, positive discipline, parenting, and special education in the Montessori environment. Thank you very much, Jackie. And Tara Kafuri. Dr. Kafuri, in 2015, earned her Doctorate of Educational Leadership. She's currently providing social, emotional, behavioral, and mental health skill building among students, staff, and families within several school communities. Her expertise allows her to effectively collaborate with the mentor staff members on contemporary social, emotional health and wellness needs. Her knowledge of how to reduce anxiety, address conflict in a safe and effective manner, and encourage self-advocacy are used when speaking with students, staff, and parents alike. Tara has also used several highly effective protocols to address students that may be at greater risk for harmful behaviors and negative coping strategies. As a consultant, Dr. Kafori advises school principals and staff on the design and implementation of critical curriculum for the development of youth ages 3 to 20. She also serves as a primary contact of assistance for educators and families resolving educational issues and grievances. Please welcome all of these wonderful people to our panel and to our school this evening. Thank you very much for your time and expertise. Appreciate that. Very quickly, I just would like to also just thank the other members from our Fusion campuses in Andover and Burlington, as well as our members here on the Newton campus for supporting us in this effort this evening. So I'm going to now pass it over so we can begin. Just let us know if we're not loud enough. Typically, Amanda and I don't have a problem with that. This is just for recording purposes. That's why I'm holding it here. And if you want to try to grab that and then pass it along between you guys, that'll be great. So we're here today, and I wanted to kind of start the conversation with some statistics. So the National Institute of Mental Health reports that 9% of teens have some type of anxiety disorder. I have anxiety right now. Usually, we're in our office. <laughs> or my legs are up. We don't really have a crowd, but thanks for coming. 8.3% of those with anxiety disorder have severe impairments as a result, and 38% of female teens have an anxiety disorder. So we just kind of wanted to open it up to you guys to kind of tell us, what are you seeing when a child comes to you? I can start. So we see kids anywhere from 3 to 25 and they're usually brought in by parents or recommended by school. And unfortunately, usually what occurs is the behaviors or the symptoms that get noticed are really a sign that things have gone on for a while because anxiety is so internalized, uh, it's hard to see. And you add the shame and the pressures of not, you know, not having fallibility and there's motivation to hide it further. So it's often difficult to identify. I mean, usually there are other issues that are co-occurring that end up bringing kids in for treatment for anxiety, among other symptoms. Can you describe a little bit the, some of the symptoms that these parents are coming in with? How are they describing their children's behavior differing from how they maybe were a couple months or years ago? I think uh, it starts with avoidance. Uh, that's the sort of quintessential behavior that comes with anxiety. Oftentimes there are panic attacks, difficulty sleeping, having a difficult time with transitions or new uncertain subject matter or activities. 
But basically, as the demands change with each developmental stage, it sort of gets reignited and you start to see, you know, just a difficult time engaging in what we're expecting kids to engage with. But an avoidance can look like lots of different things. It can look like refusing to go somewhere or perhaps behaviorally they're going to the things that they need to be going to, but they're kind of, you know, sitting back, going through the motions. They're not contributing. They're not asking questions. So it really ranges in terms of how much of an impact it can have at different sort of severity levels. When I go into schools, what I've recognized and what those who work alongside me at River Educational Consulting is what we recognize is that a child who is normally very active, very talkative, very engaged, always seemed to almost stick out from the crowd, has slowly started to phase. They tend to choose certain seating positions, preferably by the window, closer to the back of the room, that will not draw as much attention. They'll also, you'll notice that, just like my colleague had said, that they start to withdraw, they try to avoid things that they could have decided ahead of time, whether it be what they're wearing, the subject matter that they preferred, the way that they handle themselves, the tastes even of their favorite foods tend to change. And it more into something else where it seems almost like they cannot make their decision up. And it tends to then almost look like a snowball effect where a decision that used to be so easy for them to make or a practice that they used to be able to make easily and really put their heart into it has snowballed into the fact that they don't even want to attend school. They don't want to attend practice. They don't know how to make the decision. And that decision starts to boil them down where they become so overwhelmed and withdrawn that they don't even want to engage in life at times. So a lot of the times that's the kid, it's more recognizable maybe for the family or teachers, but what about the kids who are normally pretty quiet, are not the talkative raising their hand in class, the ones that we get all the time when we come to figure out what's been going on, the teachers say, well, I didn't notice anything different. What are some ways to identify kids that are struggling that are normally quieter? I think when they come to our practice that what we see is that school avoidance to the point where It's a different child. So when you have a quiet child, when you have a child that is naturally an introvert or naturally isn't engaging or doesn't participate, it's usually the, I don't want to go to school anymore. I have a stomach ache. I can't go anymore. I don't like that person anymore. It's excuse after excuse of that avoidance to the point where school refusal kicks in and the parents don't know why. And it may not be because they're, you know, defiant about it. They're just crying about it. And it's a subtle change rather than that sudden change and that school avoidance. And when school avoidance kicks in, it's an unsafe feeling. And so when they come to our office, the first thing we talk about is, tell me about school. Tell me about your classroom. Tell me about your teachers. Tell me about your friends. To try to get them to put down some of those barriers. Tell me what you want school to be like. And the bottom line is children with anxiety don't feel safe in their school. They don't feel safe with their environment. They don't feel safe with their teachers. They don't feel safe with their peers. They might not be able to tell you why, but they don't feel safe. And so it's that lack of safety. And I think that's the piece that you see with that quiet child, that child who withdraws even more and all of a sudden the bathroom breaks become frequent and their name gets called and they jump. If I can use an example, my own son, my youngest, 
was in an environment where he was not happy. We saw a complete change in his behavior. We didn't know at the time he was being bullied. He's a quiet kid to begin with. He's in the shadow of all his siblings. He was at the water fountain getting a drink, avoiding something in his class, and the teacher called his name, and he picked his head up so fast, he knocked himself out on the wall and ended up with a concussion, and it was all because he wasn't safe. And eventually he told his pediatrician, our pediatrician, well, I don't feel safe at school. That was news to us, you know. We didn't know he was bullied. We didn't know he didn't feel safe. And he's probably my most anxious child out of all of them, so, yeah. So I think it's that quiet child who avoids. I was going to also add that a lot of times we end up diagnosing an anxiety disorder by first diagnosing something else. So if you just listen to the panelists and you think about all the things we're mentioning that kids avoid, eventually you get depressed because anxiety has pulled you out of your life. You're either not doing the things you used to love to do or you're not really engaging with them. So depression is often the thing that brings kids in and often anger as well. So kids have anger outbursts for various reasons. Sometimes it's we don't get our way and we've all been there. But oftentimes it's the sort of cousin to anxiety, the fight or flight mechanism is triggered and first we try to flee and if we can't you're at school or wherever you are you're trapped then you kind of get you, you might snap and you might get angry um, and have these anger outbursts now you're a kid who's labeled with non-compliance or tantrums but oftentimes anxiety is driving the bus and that all that might stem from difficulties in school that have never been identified or you know auditory or visual processing our executive functioning issues the kids that have slipped through the cracks because they've been able to cope for so long that they get to middle school high school demands are now just so much higher than they were before and coping has you know become too difficult it's amazing how much data when kids are identified with learning issues they usually go through some form of neuropsych testing and it's incredible how much data is left in those reports that's not utilized. And one of the first things we do when a kid comes to our center is we want to understand, okay, we have these behaviors and symptoms, but we don't really know for sure what's causing them. Is a, does a kid have an underlying skills deficit? Do they have a difficulty processing visual information, verbal information, etc.? And is that predisposing them to have anxiety because they're struggling to access the material because of an underlying learning issue? Or is there a performance deficit where I would say most of us suffer from this to some degree where everybody's got to be perfect. It's all about outcome, 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 performance, performance, performance. And before we know it, we're anxious about things and we can't remember why this was so important to us in the first place. It seems as if the stakes are so much higher, especially once you get to high school, because everybody's talking about former years, former years. And I'm so happy that you got the mic because I was going to go to you. I just, I feel oftentimes kids are so resilient and they'll hit a point. And so with the behavioral therapy, obviously that one of the components that you do, I was hoping that you could kind of talk about, but finish whatever thought he got (laughs) you going on. No, I think the difficulty that I also see is a lot of children are not even taught remote coping skills. They don't know how to de-escalate themselves. They also don't know why they're escalating in the first place. It is a fight or flight response. It is sometimes a freeze response, the polyvagal theory behind that. And I think the also we can't expect a child to learn how to de-escalate themselves without giving them some kind of experience. The problem is the shortcoming of schools. They're not equipped to be able to teach our children how because they haven't been taught themselves. So here you are expecting, you know, this full glass, but it's at a deficit already. So 
I think we have to go back and it even starts with the educational programs that we have for our teachers to graduate with and even all the way up when earning my doctorate I recognized that there was absolutely zero training specifically for educators in how to address social emotional behavioral and psychological lessons that underline our children's education and that again is where I think we need to really readjust our lens and define what it means to actually be a teacher and what it needs to have as part of the full educational system for itself and then that way as well with you have parents two parents that are working in households so you don't have the time and the energy like in what we call days past where we would be taught more by our parents now they're learning a little bit more from uh, whether it's media whether it's from the schools whether it's from other peers and all of that has actually created a deficit that we just don't talk about so we're expecting children to have these coping skills we're expecting them to be able to identify where they are hurting where they are striving for more why perfectionism is in essence, a dream and not, you know, a possibility. And then I think we start from there. So it's almost like scrapping the whole thing and starting again. We had someone on our podcast a couple months back that really posed the question to us about, are we asking children too many questions? Putting them on the spot too often that no one really likes to be on the spot, right? And we're utilizing teaching strategies in most cookie cutter school environments that use that uh, so many questions and kids being on the spot from the academic component to the life skills to the what are you going to do where are you going to be and so much of the learning environment is this way but the real world isn't when you're doing your job most of the time you don't have to have everything memorized and think on the spot yeah sure maybe if you're in the ninth circuit court of appeals and you're being asked by a judge you better know that citation you know by heart but other than that so you know is this kind of component of learning of the question aspect contributing to a lot of this anxiety to answer your question yes but I think it starts with understanding how anxiety interferes with learning. Because if we don't understand how anxiety impacts learning, you're not gonna be able to understand why that question after question after question really beats down you know, our thinking. Because we're asking at such a fast rate, we don't have time to process what is being asked. You know, we don't have time to process what the answer should be. There's no thought processing going on. So we're not teaching how to think. We're not teaching how to listen. You know, listening's a dying art. We don't teach our children how to listen. And we don't teach, as adults, we don't teach other adults how to look and what to look for. So I think when you're talking about training and you're talking about schools, you have to include parents because parents are so close sometimes you don't see. Now I'm going to circle back to that quiet child. How many parents have heard or said, oh, he's always been shy. He's always been on my leg. He's always been the one I had to really take to the parties and stand with. Well, that shy child is now that adult or young adult who has shut down and doesn't know how to answer those questions because the anxiety has blocked that learning. And in the classroom with younger children, they can't keep up with the pace when anxiety kicks in. They can't think. They miss questions. They miss information because 
all they're thinking about is how do I calm down because they don't know how to calm down. Why am I thinking this way? Because the thought process is blocked by the chemicals that are released when they're anxious, when they're under stress. You know, why do kids freeze in testing situations? Because their anxiety is so high, they stop thinking. And then when they can think again, they've missed the information. So if you're being asked a question on information you didn't learn, you're going to feel like you're stupid or you failed. And then your self-esteem's going to go down. And then you're going to get depressed. And then we're going to start with all the refusals. So it is a cycle. And it is related. And we, too, we get the neuropsych evaluations. We get the you know, psychiatric evaluations in our office. We get it all. And so many times, you're right, the information's not used. The, the information we need isn't you. I would like to add to that. I think we also have to reassess how we teach at this point and how an educational system is set up. I really don't believe in having the traditional seating I think there should be alternatives to that, but also in addition to that, if you notice that a child is struggling, if you do notice that a child might turn red, there are telltale signs, there's triggers, and I'm sure you'll back me up on that. There are telltale signs when a child is struggling, whether their cheeks are red, whether they are starting to move around and squirm when they normally wouldn't. I think at that point in time, we do need to allow our educators the time to pause and the time to say, is there a chance for you to take a nice little brain walk and design the sensory walks down the hallways, design the abilities of the red light, green light, which is a very simple structure where you can take, the child puts a nice little red card on their desk and they get up and they walk around. And then that should be allowed and that will deteriorate the anxiety and re-regulate that child as a, in a matter of a short amount of time. In essence, that is a short amount of time for a longer amount of effect. So that does need to be weighed. And in addition to that, we also have to recognize that anxiety does, yes, can take children out of the classroom and can also cause depression, but can also ramp up a child to where they are turning themselves into knots to be a perfect person. And at that point in time, at some point, we all know that we just tend to sever that knot. And that will also cause a little bit more of a harmful effect that could lead into something like self-harm, that can lead into suicidal ideation, that can lead into a hopelessness, a lack of self-worth and self-confidence. I don't know if you want to touch on that too. Sure. I think just broadly, philosophically, you guys are hitting these points dead on. We, I think there are two major problems. School reinforces uh, correctness. It doesn't reinforce resiliency or creativity or getting to a solution to a problem. It just it reinforces perfectionism and it punishes making mistakes or being wrong. And then we graduate and that's not how the real world is. In fact, school teaches us everything except how to regulate emotions and how to manage finances. And then we graduate, and those are the only two things that I've been trying to wrestle with since I got out of school. And not only does school not teach it, but like you said, the educators are not educated in emotion regulation either. My dissertation was on how do we teach teachers to do this? They spend all day with these kids. I get 45 minutes a week. I'm like, you know, a drop in the bucket compared to... So how do we? Well, that was what the (laughs) dissertation was on, yeah. (laughs) How much time do you have? But I think if we take a step back from, like, what are the steps, it gets too detailed, too overwhelming. But if we think philosophically, 
schools are reinforcing correctness. That's a problem. And punishing, you know, mistakes or being quote unquote wrong or imperfect. And our society reinforces an emotionless world, right? Our society does not view emotions as neurological signals that are informing our needs. Our society views emotions as a sign of weakness or a threat. So, you know, we're swimming upstream, you know, from the start. And it's not just that kids are learning this, it's that the educators around them are embodying these principles. So emotions are bad and mistakes are bad. What do you need in order to be successful in life? You need emotions and you need to make mistakes so you can learn from them and you need emotions to learn from them. So philosophically, we're lost. And really, the kids we see are not mentally ill. They're the kids who are struggling to cope with a mentally ill society. If you ask people to do crazy things, they feel crazy even if they're not. And I think that's a big part of the problem that we see. Are you seeing any gender stereotypes coming into effect from that standpoint? Oh, yeah. Boys don't cry. You're not supposed to cry. So there's much more shame around sadness for males. And girls aren't supposed to be angry. So I don't know how they get their needs met because that's what that emotion's for. So we've taken sadness away from boys, which tells us when a need is missing. And we've taken anger away from girls, which tells us when a need is currently being blocked. And we wonder why people are unhappy. It's a major problem. And they find different ways, right? So boys like to throw over the tables and the papers off the desk while the girls internalize and start cutting and start finding other ways. And yeah, If you're a well-behaved, good kid, it takes you twice as long to get identified. If you're flipping tables over, you're getting people's attention right exactly. away. Exactly, yes. Yeah. I was just going to say the same exact. You know, we expect it from the child who has outbursts and seems to grab the attention. But now what I've noticed from the work that I've been doing, when I first wrote my dissertation, girls were almost double the ratio of self-harm and thoughts of suicide, even whether it be internal and not as traumatic of a attempt, for example, more of like taking medication versus really very dangerous ways like guns or hangings. And But now what we're noticing is that there's a lot more boys that are really becoming on the self-harm spectrum as well as suicidal. And they are experimenting in ways that we wouldn't have normally anticipated years past. And I had only written my dissertation on in 2015 on that. So that's only a fraction of a time it's only five years and we've already seen the pendulum you know sway to the other side because i work on the higher education realm we've seen a huge increase in what we call failure to launch which are students coming into college they can't cope they can't deal with the pressure of college the need to be perfect in all my courses the inability to balance a social life with my academics or what is my social life supposed to be and the anxiety about how am I supposed to be now that I'm in college and that whole piece of that adulting world it's just so scary for them to begin with that when they get to college and they it doesn't go like it's supposed to be the glory years they start to fail. And I think the anxiety that we're seeing on a college campus is incredible. And it's not just for students who have learning challenges. It's for all of our students, our athletes, our musicians. All of our children are coming in with these expectations that you're talking about. And 
They don't know how to cope with them. Well, the purpose you hear in high school is you need to go to college to get a degree. And the students get to college and then now what? Right? This is what my major is going to be in college, but this is not what I'm going to be afterwards. And so I see, we see a lot of students who then get to college and it's the idea that, you know, not only this degree, what am I going to do with this degree, but who am I? Right? Well, because college, you know, the purpose of college is to learn how to be a community member, is to learn how to manage yourself as an independent adult in a town. So your job is your academic classroom. Your residence hall is where you live when you're a young adult in an apartment building. Your social life is usually the clubs, organizations, or teams that you're on in a college. And your, you know, all the support people in your neighborhood, your doctor, your attorney, your plumber, your accountant, are all the support services at a college. Your library, your dining hall, your writing center, the tutoring center, the health center, your advisor, the dean, those are all people you know in your neighborhood. But we don't teach that. Instead, we emphasize, oh, what are you gonna major in? Oh, what program are you going into? Oh, do you know what job you want? How many 18-year-olds know what job they want? Some, some do, but most don't. So if we switch that focus and we put the focus back on to teaching how to college and the purpose of college, then those outcomes become more realistic. Then the outcomes become clearer. And if we teach kids how to do what they like and you know, go for your passions like you guys did, like these guys did, if you could focus children on their passion and it would be okay with the community around them, then we'd see more success and a, less failures. I think my parents would have preferred that I was a dentist, but <laughs> that's besides the point. I find, oh, I know, right? Exactly. If I could go back. <laughs> I do also say we're expecting individuals, we tell them every single day what they're supposed to be, what they're supposed to be like, what they should accomplish, and the courses that they should take, and that at the end of the day, we're telling them that they're individuals and they're adults, and we're leading them with absolutely no safety net after that. So we've told them every single step of the way, we've led them that way, and then we're like, okay, now go. But yet they don't even know what they like. They don't know what they don't like. They don't know what they can accept from a relationship and what they can't. They, you know, individuals, and even still, I'm 41 years old. I'm proud to say that on podcast. <laughs> I am 41 years old and I still at times am insecure at the thoughts of what I would like to do and where I want to go. And I'm okay with that. But I don't know if a 19 year old knows that they can be okay with not knowing what they're going to do. And I think unfortunately with all, yes, I do believe media plays into that but I think we also as a culture as a society especially in the Northeast are very tough on our young individuals because we expect so much for them at such a top speed that we're anticipating that in 30 seconds they can decide exactly what they want to eat where they want to go what they want to wear and who they're going to be and at that same time it's a very tough economy right now it's a very tough <laughs> place of life and we're expecting them to go into majoring in finance or dentistry or like us and we're expecting them to do it now to be perfect to have it done and then not to fail even though we say failure is okay and failure is a necessary part of life we are still not saying to them failure is a necessary part of life so you learn and failure you will have
it's inevitable. You will never be perfect 100% and it's okay as long as you've learned something and you can pick yourself up and go forward. That's where resiliency really needs to be pushed instead of just expecting straight A's along the way instead of expecting perfection from the beginning, we need to allow our children and ourselves to fail and we need to show our youth that we fail too. They need to see adults fail. I guess I would just add that, you know, one of the perfectionism and performance mindset, it pulls you out of everything. It makes it all about the outcome. And you do reach a point where you don't know who you are because you haven't asked yourself a question about what you value at all along the way. And one of the most effective treatments that we've found provides this sort of mindfulness training. And it's not mindfulness like meditation, although there's nothing wrong with that. But mindfulness is a cognitive discipline, so you're more aware of what you're thinking and paying attention to. And when kids learn to notice when they're in that performance mindset, like, oh, you know, I'm at a party or I'm in class and I'm my mind is focused on not fumbling my words like I just did instead of why am I here? What's important to me about this? Am I talking to the boy or girl that I wanted to talk to at the party? Am I getting to know them or am I not making mistakes? Because the best way to not make a mistake is to not even participate. And you know, that retraining takes time, but it's completely opposing to our culture. The other thing around making mistakes and failing, there's sort of two gold standard questions that an anxiety therapist will ask their client after we figure out, you know, what are you worried about? How likely is that thing to happen? And then how bad would it be? And the how likely question is dangerous, right? Because just by doing the math, this is even within our therapy, this bias exists. Just by doing the math, how likely is it that people laugh at you? Why would I do math on something that doesn't matter, right? So why are we even asking ourselves that question? If people are going to laugh, how are you going to cope? What are you going to do? Does it matter to you? If you're there for a values-based reason, maybe it's not the end of the world. And we're not reinforcing that latter part, right? What are you going to do when the problem exists? People who develop anxiety disorders are building a life to try to dodge threats because they're sort of fragilizing themselves. They don't believe they can deal with the threat when it occurs. The people who are most confident aren't the people who are avoiding threats. They're the people who are dealing with, they're tripping and they're, I'm really good at getting up because I trip a lot, right? I'm really good at apologizing for being late because I'm late a lot, right? So it's, I just have fewer things to worry about because I know I can deal with it when those things happen. And if we're sort of like, making everything about not making mistakes and how likely is it that we fail, it just embodies that whole culture. I believe the phrase is fake it till you make it. And I've had to really learn that, especially with this podcast. I know I wanted to kind of wrap up because I know we wanted to take some time um, to open it up for questions. So hopefully you guys have some questions. We always say on our podcast that we have really great guests, but you guys, these are like really big deal people. So I hope you have questions for them. But we'd like to kind of just end on maybe a story, a positive story of one of your clients that you've worked with, or even just a piece of advice for some of the parents that are here and how they can move forward and help their children. Jackie, do you want to start? Well, I want to start with that I no longer have to apologize being late because I just tell people that I have six kids and I get 30 minutes for each kid. So I get granted, you know, about two hours at least being late. So, no, I think the advice that I would give to parents, especially when you are looking at colleges and you're looking at the next stage, especially coming out of programs such as Fusion or a school where your child has felt very safe and the community has been very supportive, is to put your own college experience and needs aside 
and really focus in on what has worked with your sons or your daughters. What made this environment work? Was it the relationships? Was it the type of teaching? Was it the time of day? Was it the area? Was it the ability to smoothly move from place to place? Those are the important pieces when you're looking at a campus and you're looking at a college. It's not how many people graduated this year and what that statistic was or what the job placement statistic was. It's, is it the right environment? But I will add, taste the food. (laughs) Because they will be eating it for four years, you hope, or five or six, and please don't push the trajectory for them. Let them go on their own time. But make sure you have them taste the food because otherwise your Uber Eats bill (laughs) will be off the charts. And yeah, you'll be going, why am I paying that part of the tuition or the room and board? But I do also feel that if you can provide your sons and daughters with anything before going off to college, please make sure that they know how to do their laundry. Decrease that anxiety immediately. Make sure they do have a sense of financial literacy or responsibility. Teach them about debit card use. Teach them about Uber use, the safety and the financial piece and that's the story I want to share with you and also make sure that they understand that there's more than just Uber there's Lyft and the differences <laughs> now they need to know those things make sure when they understand that when they go out to dinner if they're going out with a group decide how you're paying before you get there because if you take your credit card out boy are you guys going to be surprised when you get that credit card bill because that means you pay So they need to know those social ethics or etiquette. So my Uber story is, this is when I was running a transition program at a college. I had a young lady who, you know, organization was not her thing. Time management was not her thing. College was hard for her. So we had all these supports set up for her. I get a call from her father saying, Jackie, I need to talk to you. I said, oh no, I hear it comes. I don't know what to do about Sally's Uber bill. I said, oh, is something wrong? It's $3,000. My heart sunk. I took a deep breath going, thinking to myself, the college president's going to have my head over this one. Oh, how can I help you? He said, well, I don't know if I should kill her or reward her. I said, why? He goes, well, she's getting to every appointment on time. Her executive functions are working. What this poor young lady was doing was taking an Uber to her therapist and then coming back to campus. Taking an Uber to her Pilates instructor, coming back. Taking her Uber to the health food store, coming back every day almost. So she racked up quite an Uber bill. So Uber responsibility. So we decreased her anxiety. She did fine in college. She got through it because we had all the supports and I didn't have to pay the bill. Oh my God, everything you just said made me sweat. Uber Eats in and of itself. That's a big one. (laughs) The advice I really feel strongly about is communication. I think it starts with communication. If you can be present and you can communicate with your children, not asking just how the school day was, but a little bit more, what was the most interesting thing, what was the most challenging experience, just different questions every single day. There's plenty of resources online. And lead by example, right? Today at work, Mm -hmm. I had a really stressful day. Right. You know, and how, yeah. (laughs) Oh, they don't really volunteer to hear about (laughs) my cases. I just tell them anyway. but. (laughs) But that, I think, being present and then really listening. You know, we're all busy, I get it, but you really 
chose to be a parent and so you have to be a parent and that is something that I think we've kind of lost sight in and really invest in our children really listen to them and spend the time with them and I think that is the greatest connection so if you do have a child who is struggling with anxiety if you do have a child who doesn't feel connected to anybody make sure the connection with you and that child is strong. Not much to add, but I guess just generally, I think if as parents we're concerned about supporting our kids emotionally uh, to be as healthy as they can be, I think we have to look at our own relationship to our own emotions. All too often, you know, when kids are brought to us, it's here's the identified patient and they have the anxiety disorder, which is true. But if everybody in that kid's life is anxious about the kid's anxiety or can't tolerate their own emotions, how are they expected to tolerate your kid's emotions? If you love your kid, you have empathy for your child, you're going to feel a part of what they're feeling. And if you can't tolerate that emotion in you, you're going to respond in ways that are very punishing and invalidating and send messages that we don't mean to send. That emotion is a threat. And I think that snowballs is not the is not a big enough concept, but that is probably the most important thing I think uh, any parent can really do is identify which emotions am I most comfortable with, which am I least comfortable with, why, and what can I do to work on that so that if my kid is feeling one of these emotions, I can tolerate it and I don't have to put the fire out and I can really listen. You can't really listen to your kid who's talking about feeling sad if you can't tolerate feeling your own sadness. It only works if it's a stranger. My wife would tell you that I'm way better at tolerating my client's sadness than hers. I always want to fix it and she's like, I don't know how you have a successful practice because you're terrible at this. And she's like, I just have to have faith that you're better at this when you're not here. <laughs> but it's true. I mean, I grew up Irish Catholic kid on Long Island. There there was no sadness. When I struck out, I didn't weep on my teammates. That would be shameful. Crying. There's no crying. There's no in crying baseball. in baseball or boys or whatever. An Irish family, like there was sarcasm and there was sarcasm. Yeah. So <laughs> I didn't learn that one. So when my wife is upset or somebody close to me is upset, it makes me uncomfortable. But if I'm not aware of that, I can't slow it down and I can't respond differently. So many people go through life seeing other people and how they react and they think, well, they may have difficulties with stuff, but they're doing okay. So I have to just be like that. And I think oftentimes we see a lot of parents that are dealing with it too. They're dealing with their own stressors, whether it is related to their child's difficulties or not, or some other stressors. And But the kid is seeing, well, my parent you know, has a job and is doing this, so they're able to manage, so I should be able to too right and so it's the idea of being able to show them it's okay to feel this way but it's also okay to get help and you know learn how to better regulate and learn how to not have to just deal right right yeah exactly I don't know how any of us made it but we're here and thank you for being here (laughs) right yeah is that something that you guys address Uh, the comment was made about how Back in the day, without social media, you got a break from bullying, and it's constant now with social media. Is that something you address with your clients? We do all the time. That's the other responsibility, social media responsibility. It needs to be a course on every college campus because it will get you kicked out of college if you are inappropriate on social media. We start by telling them Facebook is really fake book, and what you see is really not what's underneath. And then we talk about the other different platforms that are out there. And it comes down to their self-image and their idea of what they should be and that perfectionism and that being perfect is what you have to strive to be, whether you're the athlete 
or you are not, whether you are the prom queen or you're not, that need to look perfect, look younger. There's a real problem right now with our youth. Um, Botox is probably the best you know, stock you can buy right now, <laughs> or any of those fillers. It's epidemic. 25-year-olds are getting Botox to prevent wrinkles, to look perfect. So we talk about this with our students who are applying to college. We talk about it with our students who are looking at therapeutic schools. We talk about the need to start learning how to put your phone away. And it starts with dinner, guys. If you can have family dinners, phones go down. You know, one of the TED Talks that I saw recently was, and I showed it to all of my children and I show it to my clients, I make them watch it. It talks about if your phone is on the table, you're not listening to the person. It's an intrusion. So put the phones away at dinner. Start there. Start small. My kids will tell you they hate me because their electronics all live in one place at night. The ones that are home. Right now it's only one. He hates me because I take everything away. Because if I don't, He'll be up all night because they can't shut it off. You need to be the parent, shut it off. Put controls on your kids' phones. Control what apps they can access. They'll get around it. They're smarter than us. They're better at it. But for that short period of time, they can't access. They need to learn because their bodies and their minds can't do it on you know, alone. It's an addiction. These guys can talk more about that. But start with dinner. Take the phones away at night. One of the things I love about my son who's at boarding school, Wi-Fi gets shut off by the school, and there's no cell tower nearby. <laughs> He's got no access. So it's great. He's learning how to study without his phone. Yeah, that's great. So. Well, I think one thing I think we can be helping support the kids is learning about flexibility. One thing with social media, oftentimes with teenagers especially, and even into college, and I see it with my friends as well, is once you put something online, like that's what it is, right? There's no changing the plan. There's so much anxiety over, well, I put that I was in a relationship, and it's not the end of the relationship that's the hard it's having to take it down from social media that's hard right because you put it out in the universe and I think a lot of even adults have trouble with flexibility of I put this plan in place and I have to follow this plan no matter what but how often do plans need to change in real life and the flexibility that comes along with I mean I think about when I was in college I changed my major four times and a lot of people I remember back then changing your major was thought of as like that was a bad thing to do right I have people telling me all the time oh my my gosh, you changed it that many times. But it was like I found that wasn't the place for me and I needed to change because so often kids are stuck in that major and they're not happy. They're not thriving. They're not finding what they're passionate about. So being able to be flexible with things I think is important both on social media and off. The only thing I'd add about social media, I think it sometimes gets a bad rap. Certainly the bullying doesn't turn off. The short of it is I would look at the function of its use. I would look at every kid in every case on a case-by-case -case basis I'd be communicating about it. Uh, if the function of social media appears to be detrimental, then have a discussion about it. Then you may need to set some limits. But for many kids, social media is the only outlet they get, and it's a lifesaver. It's not all or nothing. And educate yourself. I mean, I'm like every week I'm learning about new apps, and you know, oh, you know. 
I, I, I don't learned TikTok about yet. that the other day. <clears throat> I'm not TikToking yet, but I am reading about it. I don't have the musical abilities to TikTok, but well, you find that the world is a lot smaller. The online community that people can find like-minded people. We've found in our Facebook group that we have with the podcast is we're finding people who are in either rural parts of the country or parts where they don't know any other parents that has a kid with anxiety or a kid with Down syndrome, and how else are they going to find someone that they can connect with? I've so had, you're right. I've had dozens of patients tell me that those were the only connections they had at certain they didn't feel their families understood them they didn't have any friends and there was somebody out there who had been through what they've been through so there's two sides to it but it's important to look at the function of it and have a discussion around it and not view it as all good or all bad and it's too easy to throw our hands in the air and also say well it's inevitable so I shouldn't address it at all either but you know there's no clear answer and the data goes both ways too so it really depends on how it's used so the question revolved around social emotional learning within the public school system and how it's being addressed or should be addressed it's not (laughs) short answer Um, yeah it's not it's i think school districts are trying Uh, they're beginning to recognize how much money they have spent on the tertiary level after the kid is out on a medical leave they're they're refusing school they've got programs now that are mostly around transition although most of the school districts we're working with are having trouble transitioning the kids out of the transition program so it, it successfully gets them back into the building but it doesn't get them back into the classroom and the supports are usually either you know under trained in social emotional emotion regulation strategies and interventions or they're just completely overburdened. You know, public schools and colleges have the kids, right? And again, I get 45 minutes a week. A lot of our services are a little bit more intensive than that, but the principle behind it is the real information is not in the schools. New York just published, just uh, made, uh, put into law that social emotional education has to be a part of every school district's curriculum, but it's it doesn't describe parameters on how ingrained it has to be in the culture. So most school districts, the best school districts, which are still falling short, are bringing it into like the health class and they do like a segment on that, but it's not enough. I'd like to push it a little farther. So to me, my ideal concept is actually into every subject matter. Restorative justice is also a great buzzword, but I don't know how many educators actually know how to do that. A social emotional learning within history class, whether it's science class, math class, all of this has the capability. If a situation arises, you can encourage your students to use comprehensive thought of action before they engage in something that can be detrimental to another person or themselves. So it needs to not just be in health class, which I appreciate definitely, but it has to be in every single class. It has to become a part of, and I said this earlier in the podcast, it has to become a part of our educational system as a whole. We are human beings who need to learn how to live with other human beings, and we're not going to be able to do that until we learn in school and at home. So both, the community as well, in addition to the home and education. But it has to be in every single classroom. It can't just be put up to the physical education classroom. It really does need to be taught in and every subject in order for it to really take root, and it needs to start as early as possible kindergarten or if not earlier preschool. Pre- right preschool exactly yeah. right 
degree. Exactly. Right. And 45 minutes to 55 minutes of a classroom, even if you had it three times a week for gym class, is just still not enough. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't take hold. And we need to have children have it really take hold in order for us to absolutely lay a solid foundation and meet all the needs of these children. That's some wonderful suggestions. Yeah, you have some that. I just want to add to that. It should start, you know, preschool, if not, you know, daycare all the way up. It should be embedded into our education system, but it shouldn't stop after 12th grade. It should continue through college because, you know, that's the foundation for what the soft skills of industry are. Those are those soft skills that all of us who hire people are looking for. That empathy, that collaboration, that understanding, the critical thinking. We want that, and yet we're not teaching it. We're not teaching people the ability or recognizing the ability to see others and to hear others. So it has to keep going. Most universities now are implementing restorative justice. So yes, that has to be all the way through. And you may want to speak on what that is for those who don't know. But again, it has to be all the way through. We can't stop education at 12th grade. We have to be inclusive with higher ed into it because our students that are going off to college need to know that learning never stops that what they learn in K-12 they need to take into high school, with them from, to, from high school into college, and then college beyond. And these are all principles that we know can be integrated into any curriculum, and we often tell our listeners this is something that any parent, any educator can fight for. It is important for the general public, the students themselves, the parents, the educators, the psychologists, anyone who's working with these demographic, to go to the school districts. School districts are not always going to make the changes on their own. Sure, legislation changes happen often, but the implementation is very slow. How it goes down to the administrators and then the training that goes to the school staff, it's very, very slow. So we encourage parents especially to go to the school districts, go to your school board meetings, bring it up as something that you want this kind of curriculum embedded from as early as kindergarten, preschool, if your district has it. And it's as easy as a couple of parents going and insisting on it. So we so appreciate you guys being here today. We covered some great topics. We hope you guys all had a very insightful conversation with us. We're going to be after for a few minutes if there's any other questions. This episode will go live, I believe, in next week, the 21st. So if you want to share the episode with anybody. If you were anxious about a question and you missed some of it, you can re-listen to it. So it'll be great. So Send again, thank you. on Instagram. Yeah. You'd be happy to answer it there as well. Yeah, exactly. Thank you so much. And we'll, you guys will hear this next week. Bye.